Welcome to the Ag Emerge podcast, brought to you by Ag Solutions Network. Your farming challenges are unique, so your practices should be too. We're here to share emerging ideas, build connections, and provoke conversation. Get ready to improve your soil, your crops, your livestock, and your family's livelihood. I'm your producer, Kim Chase. And I'm your host, Monty Bottens. Thanks for joining us. Thanks for joining us. Today, we welcome Kevin McDonald, Vice President of Customer and Government Relations at Guardian Agriculture, where they develop autonomous eVTOL systems for sustainable farming on a commercial scale. If the term eVTOL is new to you, it stands for Electric Vertical Takeoff and Landing Aircrafts. Guardian Agriculture is working to provide growers access to safe, effective, and precise aerial applications. This is an exciting discussion, so let's jump right in. Welcome, everyone, to this episode of the Aggie Merge podcast. I'm pleased to be joined by Kevin McDonald of Guardian Agriculture. Welcome, Kevin. Thank you very much. Uh, glad to be here. Appreciate you having me on. Well, um, we've all seen a lot of news articles and a, and a lot of fun things in regards to automation and robots and especially drones. And uh, probably almost every farmer has a drone now. Uh, you know, I do. We've had them for several years. You can take some really cool pictures and they kind of are a fun toy. But beyond that, they've just kind of lost their their luster a little bit, uh, imaging and, and those kind of things. But now enters the application phase. So uh, that's what Kevin's involved with. And I'd just like for you to share, Kevin, uh, you know, your story personally, but also the the Guardian Agriculture story. How did it, how did you uh, get involved and, and how did Guardian Agriculture get its start? Sure. So, you know, it's a great question and, and uh, it was actually a, a good lead in there. Um, the founders of the company, you know, were, were seeing what were, were going on with drones and, and believed that there must be some way that, that we can improve upon, you know, the hobby market, which was, uh, essentially just a flying selfie stick. Um, and, and you know, how, how can we put them to better use? So they were exploring use cases. Adam uh, Berkew, our uh, CEO, uh, grew up in uh, an aviation business. His, his father owns an aviation business and uh, was focused on, on applications for, for this technology and um, saw the momentum that had been created um, in, in Asia. With, with drones to put them to good use, right? Um, Asia has a, a, a real um, a shortfall in uh, res personnel, human resources to be able to go out and, and do applications and um, for, for some of the same reasons the United States does and, and decided to focus in that area. How can we put this technology to good use in the US and then exploring you know, what, what our options are uh, to be able uh, to do that, which which ultimately, and and we can talk, you know, the 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 different things that the company explored um, to get to where we are, but ultimately led to, um, you know, getting a, a group of engineers together, uh, robotics, electrical engineers, to to build a system specifically designed to meet the demands of uh, U.S. agriculture. Well, I shouldn't say just U.S., but but Western agriculture, I should say. Right. So that's interesting, the, the Asia market uh, take on that, Kevin, because I remember quite a few years ago seeing, I, I believe it was Yamaha made a um, gas-powered helicopter, like a miniature helicopter that's remote controlled. And I think that's used in uh, rice fields in Japan, if I'm 
remember because you have irregular shapes and small formats and especially in rice you know there's no ground rigs available so uh is that kind of some of that uh background is uh, taking and making instead of a, a large format um drone that's man um steered if you will to making that a large format automated that yes that's absolutely right so yamaha great idea right they they took a system uh basically a helicopter and then they miniaturized at a helicopter to be able to do the same things that helicopters currently do. But, or let me rephrase that, um, to do things that helicopters can do, but won't do in in the in, in the United States, specifically vineyards. So, yes, they were over there flying in, in uh, rice paddies and, and and all of that. But Yamaha is currently flying right now um, in wine country up in in California, and, and the helicopters won't fly there because of you know just the the infrastructure within the field right a helicopter doesn't want to go fly in a, a field that's got a bunch of steel posts every few feet and it's just a it's it's dangerous right um but the technology didn't support uh you know at, at that time the time that they were fielding it didn't support uh the level of automation that's really quire, uh, required to unlock all the benefits of of what we could actually um, you know, move towards. So um, Yamaha did a, a great job in, in helping to lead the way into to this specific technology. So I think one thing, um, and, and people will be able to see pictures on the links in the newsletter and, and show notes that we send out, but one thing I think is really unique about the uh, Guardian Agriculture approach is that basically your size format, right? Uh, you know, most all of these other ones that have come into the market, I'm familiar with Rantizo and, you know, um, oh, the drone, DGI sells a, a drone that has these small one, maybe two gallon tanks. Uh, they fit in a suitcase and can go in the backseat of your truck. Uh, I got to see the, uh, uh, your, I believe it's SC1 model and it won't fit in the back of my pickup truck. Uh, mm -hmm. This is, this is some serious hardware here. So talk about uh, why you chose to go this larger format. Uh, I know the answer, but I, I, I think <laughs> uh, people need to know that uh, these are the latest tricks in, of the trade, right? And I think we're going to have kind of another wave of people buying this, the selfie stick uh, mm -hmm. without it being as usable as maybe what they hope to. So dive into that for us. Sure. So, you know, going back to, to the, to the lead in uh, that we had earlier, um, when when Adam and, and the other engineers that he's friends with started exploring this, they they were trying to figure out um, how where to find the efficiencies in the available technologies for the aerial application industry in um, in agriculture, and they looked at can they automate existing aircraft? Um, can they build something similar to what Helio does? uh you know sourcing parts from uh you know drone markets and and building smaller ones and then swarming those smaller ones or should they start from a fresh clean slate and ultimately what they found was the parts that they could source um were were not very well suited to the dusty dirty environments uh that we currently have in agriculture and um the you know automating large aircraft, uh, you know, certainly addresses the, the, the size and the scale of the problem set that we're trying to address. Um, but it doesn't substantially improve 
on uh, you know the environmental benefits and the safety benefits of of designing a system from the ground up. So they designed the SC one. Uh, it is large. You know, it's uh, the frame itself is is eight and a half feet by eight and a half feet. So it fits into a standard uh, trailer or on the back of a flatbed. You can roll it down the road. Um, but it is a large aircraft that uh, you know when loaded with a twenty gallon payload is. Um, you know, right about 500 pounds. So it's, it's not small. <laughs> That's right. So um, uh, it is, it is impressive to see in person um, and, and talk a little bit more about, you know, hauling 20 gallons versus two gallons. Uh, you know, you've got 10, 10 times uh, the spray time, right? Um, what are some of the other advantages to that larger format that you've, that you've run across? Sure. So it's, it's really the scale, right? Um, the smaller systems, not to say that there isn't a place for them, right? It's, it's another tool, um, but they're not optimized for, for larger scale agriculture. So the SC1 that you referenced uh, is designed for high volume, high frequency work in specialty, um, as well as low volume work in smaller acreage field crops. And, and when I say smaller acreage, I mean, you know, a quarter section and less. Um, so corn fungicide applications, things like that. Um, but the, the smaller systems, you have to do so many cycles, especially when you talk about like, we'll use California as an example, 20 gallons per acre, um, and the Salinas Valley is, is what they apply. That's a lot of volume to take out into a field. And when you've only got, you know, a two and a half to a 10 gallon tank, your efficiency is significantly reduced when you talk about high volume rates. So one of two things had to happen. You either had to scale up in size or you had to um, influence the EPA and uh, the respondents to um, change label guidance, right? And, and the second of those two is going to take a long time to address. Uh, so we designed the 20 gallon system specifically to be able to efficiently apply um, at standard volumes, rates, and pressures uh, across, you know, um, 140 acres or or less, and in a reasonable amount of time, and the unit economics to make sense. Yeah, that's a that's a great point too, because early on I had an opportunity to look at one of the um, uh, startups in the small format drone, and they were talking about how, you know, I asked a question after their their pitch. I said, well. You're, they had talked about, you know, selling the AI, the active ingredient, as uh, essentially like a printer cartridge that you would put on the drone and it would interchange. So you'd be spraying basically straight, you know, material. And I said, what What about the EPA regulations? You know, you got a certain amount of water required to apply. And, and they just looked at me like a deer in the headlights. Look, they'd never even heard of that before. Mm -hmm. I mean, how, how could you not know that if you're entering the space, right? Yeah, it, it, you know, there's it's there's there's two different types of, of people looking at this, right? There's um, in the ag industry, there are, you know, the growers and the applicators that they just need to be able to get the work done um, and they understand, but they don't necessarily understand um, what are the best tools. Uh, and, and then that goes to the second part of this, which is um, the the UAS industry has not been completely honest um, and and not forthcoming about you know what data sets are we going to use uh, are we going to standardize data sets across 
uh, the, the various types of equipment, are, are we going to tell the truth? Like, you know, I can tell you that the SC1 is not optimized for uh, broad acre uh, agriculture, that you can use it, but uh, there's probably a better piece of equipment. Um, some of the other competitors out there probably don't want to say that because they really just want to be able to sell systems. So um, we've we've approached this from the standpoint um, and, and my uh, short, uh, you know, background in agriculture, I learned very quickly that that relationships are, are what bu you build and drive uh, this industry. And uh, if you cannot build trust um, in your relationships, ultimately you're going to fail. So, um, you know, like my title, I'm in uh, effectively sales and, and regulatory. Um, I'm an operations guy. Uh, and it just turns out that being an operations guy in agricultural sales is actually a benefit um, because I'm going to tell you uh, if our product is going to work or if it's not going to work. And then I can make recommendations. I'm building that relationship because I know over time, if our current offering doesn't work for you, very, very likely that in the future, we're going to have something that's going to solve your problems. And I've got you know, a, a good connection with that individual to go back and, and revisit how we can make things better. I think that's a great point. Too many people just try to sell what they have and hope it fits everything where it's it's better off long term because uh, farmers have the memory of an elephant, right? Never forget. Yes. And and I think it's always best to say what you can do and what you can't do. And if you can't do it, um, you know, be honest. And I, I appreciate that approach. One of the things in talking with your pilot, when I went to see the the unit fly there in Salinas was he says hey on on your broad acre crops or your you know you got a flat square field that you know no power lines no trees no no buildings no no problems uh, you know to do that with uh, this type of format 100% it doesn't make a lot of sense but i thought he had a very interesting point in how you're looking at integrating air tractors with the drone so the drone would basically do field edges because, you know, that way we don't miss any spots if we hit the switch too soon, too late, um, and or do corners of the field around houses or or do a wrong tree lines or irregular shapes. So then the air tractor can just come in and buzz the the, the meat of the field, if you will, real quick. Um, talk about that strategy and, and what you've seen there and how that improves efficiencies for the applicator. Yeah, it's, it's a great point that Chris made, um, and I glad, I'm, I'm glad that he brought it up. So... Um, you know, e even in, even in the broad acre market, as he said, you know, our, our system isn't designed for full field coverage, but, uh, it certainly does improve safety. So, you know, before coming to garden agriculture, I, uh, ran the aerial business for Wilbur Ellis, uh, for, for two years. And, uh, I understand the risks, uh, being a pilot myself, you know, I, I understand, you know, what it's like in the cockpit. Um, but I also understand the risks from a business perspective, um, you know, how, how can we make things better? And, and that particular use case in, in, in this particular instance is, is absolutely appropriate. You've got an irregular shaped field with power lines on one side, a stand of trees on the other. Um, and it's difficult, right? You're not going to get edge to edge coverage with a helicopter or, or with an aircraft. Um, and, and that, uh, application quality is going to vary by the pilot. Right. Um, so, what, uh, you know, one customer that we have is, uh, you know, not, not true broad acre, but he's like, Kevin, you know, he's running a fleet of helicopters. Uh, he's like, I, I want an 80, 80 acre rectangle for my helicopters. 
Um, so I want to use these systems to go in and paint the edges so that I can send the helicopters in to do the easy part, which is the middle, the 80 acres, perfect symmetrical rectangle. And, uh, you know, basically using each tool to its maximum potential to increase efficiency for existing operations. Um, and if there's any instance of, you know, needing to go back and do cleanup, he sends one of our units back instead of sending a helicopter uh, all the way back. So, and, and you can translate that across, um, you know, Broadacre, specialty, uh, aircraft, uh, ground sprayers. It, uh, it, it, it doesn't really matter. It's, it's really um, pulling apart the use cases and then understanding how to best use the tools that you have to make your operations as efficient as possible. And that edge to edge that you're mentioning is so important for uh, example of spider mites because uh, they typically start at the edge of the field and, and where is the, the spot that's hardest hit aerially is the, the edge of the field because we don't want to get too close to an adjacent crop or, you know, a road, those kind of things. So I, I think, you know, that or thrips or, or those kind of things that might come in from a field edge. Uh, that's a, that's a big deal. Plus the smaller, format than a 60 or however wide the pattern is on an air tractor. Um, you know, you look at almonds, for example, um, typically two or three varieties in every orchard and they all bloom at a little bit different times. You could send the mission out to spray just the nonpareils this day, wait for so many growing degree units and spray the monterays, you know, at a later time, because you can basically go row by row. Um, yeah, I mean, absolutely. It, it, it is. And, you know, our CEO has a saying, um, and, and it's, it's funny, but it's, it's absolutely accurate, is that we've, we've designed and built a system that is capable of painting a Mona Lisa um, on, on a field, but everybody wants a black canvas. So it can do either, right? It can paint that black canvas and cover the field with 20 gallons per acre on every single acre, all the way up to the edge, uniform, um, and the same way every time, so you get the same spray quality, uh, or it can go out and do exactly what you said, which is uh, pinpoint uh, specific swaths or specific pinpoint areas. Um, it's, it's a robot, so it does exactly what you tell it to do. We're taking a short break to share that the Ag Emerge podcast is brought to you by the team at Ag Solutions Network. Rooted in innovation, ASN is committed to leaving the land better than we found it, not simply maintaining it. We're here to help you navigate the balancing act of productivity and building a legacy. From practices to products, ASN is more than a new jug. It's a new way of thinking. So don't be afraid to be different. Be afraid to be the same. Contact Ag Solutions Network today at asn.farm. And now back to our show. So let's talk about the cool geeky stuff now a little bit. Sure. We got to get our, we got to get our um, uh, fix there. So it's all automated, right? So if you say there is a corner of that field you want to spray, you can draw that, I assume, on some sort of application. It will pre-plan the flight, and it will just go fly that corner and come back, correct? Correct. You're not The only reason you got there with a the joystick is if there's a, an oh crap moment, and, and you need to take control, right? Uh, but other than that, it, it, it flies the mission 100%. It does everything, really. Um, and so I'm a Marine, and, and the joke about uh, Marines is Marines... Um, you know, you teach a Marine to, to make crayons or give a Marine a crayon. He'll eat for a day, teach a Marine to make crayons and he'll eat for life. So like, you know, Marine, Marines are, 
you know, among the services, you know, were the knuckle dragging, crayon eating, window lickers, you know. Um, and and I came into the company and I said, look, guys, you're building this machine for me. Um, and you you need to be able to build a system. Engineers are great at building systems for engineers. <laughs> um, they're not always so great at building systems for for operators, right? We just think differently than they do. So we need to make think this thing as not not just safe, but also um, easy, simple interface. So the interface with the pilot is, uh, you know, just the mission planning side of it. You uh, you go in and, and you import the shape file. You you set the boundaries. Uh, you input the hazards. Uh, tree lines, power lines, uh, net tower, you know, whatever it is, wherever you need to, to stay away from. Um, and if you want to do the whole field, you send it, right? But if, if you want to do specific areas, if you've got a, you know, a pest pressure map or something like that, then, then you can map it out and um, the, the software will, will pick out that specific area. Uh, it, and, and once you hit go, it, it goes. We, you know, there will be backup sticks, but you know, the engineers can can engineer to solve, uh, you know, 95% of the problems, but that last 5% is next to impossible to, to engineer out. Like we're going to spend so much time and money trying to, to solve that problem when really, you know, it, it, that's, it's just a wasteful effort, right? So, um, for instance, DJIs will go out and, and they'll be spraying a fungicide application on core and they'll come to a waterway they'll dip down into the waterway and then it sees a stand of corn in front of it and it can't go anywhere doesn't know what to do so the pilot's got to take over manually tell it to climb back up and and then continue on the way like you can put that waterway in through our software and and it knows it's got a backup when it sees the crop canopy drop away it knows hey i'm not i'm not descending down into that you know we can solve for things like that we can make it better but we can't solve for all of them um Typically, what, what the pilot's going to do is, is interact um, with the aircraft with a handheld unit, which just has a few selections, um, which is uh, pause. Hey, I want to hover and turn the spray system off while I'll figure out what's going on. Um, land in place, uh, you know, land right where you are because something bad's going on right now, whatever. Um, or return to land, which is, hey, come back here and land back on the, the trailer or the truck, whatever you've got. Um, and then, you know, the, the fail safe, obviously this is an electric aircraft. It's a robot. You want to be able to disarm the motors as quickly as possible. So we've got an emergency stop button that physically disconnects the propulsion battery from the motors. So the motors immediately stop, which is, which is critical for ground operations, right? You don't want someone walking up to the aircraft, um, when those motors are powered, you don't want those blades spinning up because they're right at about, you know, depending on how tall you are, you know, waist to chest high, um, so yeah, <laughs> got to be able to uh, ensure that there is no physical connection between the propulsion battery and those motors. So that I mean, other than those those four options, um, it's just you know it, send it on its way, and you essentially become a loader. You recharge the battery and you refill the payload, and it does everything else for you. So that's the next thing I wanted to talk about is recharging a battery. So most of us are probably familiar with the the smaller formats or have owned one where you're, you're pinching something, pulling a battery out, putting it on a charger, putting the charge battery in. Uh, that was one of the things that just kind of surprised me at first is it has an onboard battery. 
And I'm thinking, oh boy, how long has it got to sit at a Tesla Powerwall to to recharge for a flight, <laughs> right? Uh, but that's pretty amazing what you guys have come up with on the charging system there. Uh, walk us through all that, why you went with the onboard battery, uh, you know, size and those kind of things, and then how you recharge it in the field. Sure. So two reasons there. One's efficiency and, and the second is safety. Um, I'll address the safety first because it's easy. Um, you know, a a battery uh, is in these in these machines is the propulsion system. Uh, oh, it is the fuel source, and um, I would not want my fuel source for an aircraft failing mid-flight. When you take a battery out uh, in a dusty, dirty environment, um, you're collecting dust, dirt, and grime on those battery connections. Uh, and you don't know when that connection is going to fail. And you just, fingers crossed, it doesn't fail when you're in flight, right? Um, these machines are much larger than, than what folks are, uh, you know, tend to be using. So we don't want to go tear up a field with, with uh, you know, an aircraft that's tumbling through, you know, strawberries or corn or, or whatever it is. Um, so we decided to, to integrate that battery, um, which created the, the second issue that we needed to, do, to solve, which is efficiency. Um, if you're going to keep the battery integrated, right, you've got less infrastructure, less uh, equipment that you're going to have to maintain. You just need a charging system. Um, which makes it clean and simple. It's easy, uh, but you got to be able to charge it fast because you're not. Nobody's going to deal with you know a, a a thirty minute, forty five minute Tesla charge time. Um, and we couldn't find a battery uh, commercially available that was able to charge at the rates that we wanted to. So we've got some really smart electrical engineers that that did their homework and and you know crunched some numbers, um, and found that we can build our own battery by modeling what Tesla did with their batteries, which is sourcing cells and then building the battery ourselves uh, in such a way that it can accept a very high rate of charge. So we've optimized our battery for energy density to be able to lift a heavy load, fly, dispense that load quickly, fly back, and then accept a very fast charge rate. So, um, we charge at, at for the for the engineering types that are out there. We charge at a five C rate, which is basically five times faster than than what Tesla charges right now. So that that aircraft comes back on on say an eight minute flight, um, or we'll we'll continue we'll use eight eight minute flight for for corn fungicide applications. So comes back from an eight minute flight lands, and we achieve a uh, two minutes of flight for one minute of charge. So that eight minute flight is gonna take four minutes to recharge while the tank is refilling and it's gonna go back out. Um, if you just hear it in that context, it's like, well, that's a long time on the ground. Um, but when you start talking about, you know, that would be a, a low volume work situation. So a corn fungicide application, you've got a 20 gallon tank uh, at a two gallon rate, uh, which is the, the label for, for aerial. Um, you're gonna empty that tank over 20, or I'm sorry, 10 acres. Uh, in eight minutes. It's going to come back, land. You're going to start refilling the tank and recharging the battery. And four minutes later, it's going to go back out. And it's going to basically repeat that process over and over again. The uh, efficiency that you gain with that high rate of charge uh, is 45 plus acres per hour. That includes the tending time. 
on the ground. So from the time you pull up to the field to the time you pull away and that field's complete, you're, you're netting somewhere between 45 and 50 acres per hour. It just depends on your ground setup. Yeah. And, you know, one of the things uh, too that, you know, they mentioned just the sheer size of that battery over a hundred pounds, just awkward to, to exchange to. But I, I think uh, that's impressive. If you can, if you can charge it twice as fast as you burn it uh, essentially in the air, um, that's wonderful. And I, and I also see where you could do two of them in tandem, one, one flying, one charging and filling and, and still, you know, have the resources to keep them, keep them both moving at the same time. So absolutely. Yep. Yeah. Agreed. So that's fantastic. And then a little bit of engineering went in to figure out how to do that in a remote location. Right. So, you know, you have a truck specially set up with that, with a, a charger that had never been done before or something that I understood to talk some of that. That's kind of fun to hear what, what uh, you go through to, to figure these problems out. Yeah. So one, we designed the battery, then we've got to figure out how we're going to charge it. Right. Cause you've got to get a lot of juice in there through the supercharger. So we've got to figure out how to build a supercharger one um, to be able to really jam that energy into the battery. But, but two now, okay, we got that built. Where are we going to get the power? And uh, it needs a, not an insignificant amount. All right. So we need 70 KW to be able to, to charge the maximum charge rate. Um, but we figured out that a PTO generator works great. So we've got two different trucks. We've got an F550 and an F350. And uh, they're both capable of, of running the same PTO generator. But that PTO generator off of either one of those two trucks uh, provides 70 kW of power to the supercharger to supercharge the battery. Um, so, I, you know, it, it was a, a probably two and a half, yeah, two and a half year effort to, to get to that, where we've got the battery, the supercharger, and figuring out how we're going to get the, uh, the power to the battery or to the supercharger without having to haul around a standalone generator on a trailer, which is, you know, that's, that would be silly. Well, and plus it take, it's a big generator too. So those are, those are some impressive numbers. That's for sure. Uh, I think, you know, sorry to interrupt Monty. I, you know, one thing that, that I will say is we didn't stop there. Right. So the future for this, um, for, for those customers that want it, right. It, it goes into the uh, sustainability and, and environmental friendly of, of this is, Again, taking it one step further and saying, hey, um, we want to build a battery pack to charge, to supercharge the aircraft. So essentially, uh, our roadmap has a trailer that is a battery pack. Um, and we take that level of automation that we were discussing earlier one step further, where we fully automate um, not just charging, but also refilling. Uh, the aircraft comes back, precision lands on the back of a trailer, um, mates with a system that will then uh, fill the tank and recharge the battery without the need for a generator because the trailer itself is the battery pack. And it just sips off of that battery um, over the day. And then at the end of the day, when you're done, you take it back home, you plug it in, and the trailer recharges overnight, and you're all ready for the next day. No, fantastic. And I really like the idea of the automation of the uh, connection of both the fluid product and the power. Uh, that'll, you know, again, eliminate a person so you can have one pilot uh, monitoring the 
the machine and, and everything else can pretty much be automated. So that'll really improve that, that time because the time on the grounds or the time stopped on the end of the field, whether it's a, a planter, a sprayer, or, or the, the guardian ag SC1, all of them, uh, that that's the least productive. So I, I wanted to jump in a little, little bit, uh, the, your regulation hat. I know this is, oh, this is always gosh. fun because, uh, yeah. uh, you know, I, I have a saying a government moves at glacial speed mm. and, uh, you know, these, these new technologies are so far on the edge or the fringe of, of what the government regulations are. I mean, there's been lots of exceptions made in that. Talk to us about that regulatory climate, what a person needs to have as far as a pilot's license or not when they're doing this and, and what that looks like in the future as, as drones become basically mainstay. Sure. Um, yeah. Regulatory. That's a, a beast uh, to say the least. <laughs> um, so, you know, there, there's, there's two different levels of, of the regulation, right there from, from an aviation standpoint uh, or air, I should say aerial application standpoint, right? You've got the, the federal level and then you've got the state level. Um, so at the federal level, really that that's been our, our struggle the last um, many years uh, the FAA uh, is uh, undermanned to deal with this um, emerging industry. Uh, there are so many applicants uh, and so few staff to process uh, every application that comes in. So when they when a company wants to fly uh, a drone, whether it's a small one or a large one in a commercial capacity, they have to apply. Uh, through the FAA to be able to do that. And, and you can imagine with, with all the drones that are out there right now, how many applications are coming into the FAA. Um, and as the, uh, you know, the, the drone sprayers are coming into the market, we're seeing more and more of those. You can imagine everybody that wants to fly one has got to apply at the federal level for Part 137, which is the, the federal aviation regulations for um, aerial application of uh, agricultural products. So they're dealing with a lot. Um, so, you know, what we did was uh, we applied for uh, getting approval, one, to be able to fly the aircraft in a, in a commercial capacity, right? It's a brand new aircraft. It's got to go through airworthiness inspections. It's got to go through, they got to look at the concept of operations and the, uh, the operations handbook that we made and uh, the maintenance handbook that we made, all of that right, um, to be able to ultimately arrive at a decision to say, yes, uh, Guardian Agriculture, you are, um, uh, we believe that, that what you have created here is, is safe to fly uh, in a commercial capacity. Um, we're not there yet. Uh, we are very, very close. We're told that it's in the final stages of signature, so we should expect uh, some, some big news coming um, here this, this spring. I know we're actually technically already at spring. Um, but uh, so so that was that was one one hurdle that we had to overcome. The second one is applying for for the Part One Thirty Seven to be able to spray uh, in 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 agriculture, and we are you know I I guess you know less than two months away from from having that as well. That that one's a little easier to to follow on track. And for those of you that are out there uh, listening to this, that that have drones and and have applied for a Part One Thirty Seven, understand that you can ask where you are in the queue. Um, and they'll give you a number. Um, right now, the FAA is processing somewhere between 20 and 25 Part 137 applications per month. Um, and you can uh, 
basically extrapolate over time using that math uh, how far away you are from from getting an approval for a part 137. So I think we were number 35 the last time that we checked. So how are um, they going to, I mean, with all the drones that are going out uh, and being available, how are they going to ramp up to um, meet these applications? Or are they just going to say, oh, no 137 needed? I mean, what <laughs> it, this is going to be a real problem, right? Um, You're absolutely bottleneck right. to your and sales. That that's well, um, no, I, I don't oh, think so. Okay, good. Um, I, you know, there there are two things, and 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 I'm glad you asked the question because I was building to it. Was um, how do we help the FAA understand um, what's appropriate uh, to analyze in in these particular use cases? Um, it's new technology, right? So. Uh, we were fortunate enough in, in drafting our documents and, and interacting with the FAA that the FAA was was really impressed with what we were doing. Um, they chose to partner with us in, in what they call the Integration Partnership Agreement, um, which uh, used to be it used to be called the PSP, the Partnership for Safety Program. Uh, essentially, what the FAA said is, "Hey, Guardian, um, will you help us? Um, uh, you know, basically." identify what standards and what metrics need to be met. So, um, you know, how do we understand that, that this particular aircraft or that particular aircraft is safe to fly? Um, how do we understand, you know, what, what training is required for these pilots? Um, what should their operational procedures, um, whether they're, you know, field operations or maintenance, what, what should that look like? What should their documentation look like? Um, things of that nature. So, uh, we, we've actually got, um, some uh, ability to influence the way that the FAA operates. And, and my hope is that over time, we're going to see a lot of those barriers come down, uh, especially in agriculture, right? It, it makes sense uh, to be able to lean into the agricultural side of this piece. Everybody's talking about urban air mobility and package delivery, and that's inherently dangerous stuff. We're talking about flying drones over people or flying people in drones over people. Um, and, and here, all we're asking to do is be able to apply crop inputs in a, a smarter and safer way than is currently done, not to say to replace anything, but uh, to be able to do it uh, in a smarter way when when it's warranted um, in an area that is unpopulated and, and typically rural. Um, so the FAA recognizes this. Uh, we're helping them build a path towards it. Uh, and, and hopefully we'll see over time that uh, the Part 137 applications and what we call the 44807 applications that those timelines come down significantly. What we're going to do for our customers is when a customer provide or, or, or purchases a system from us, we provide all of the regulatory assistance. We've applied for all of the exact same things that, that our customers are going to apply for. We know what um, particular things our customers can reference in their applications. Uh, to expedite the process. Uh, we provide them with uh, templates of what they need to um, up, uh, apply with those forms, pre-filled basically, just, just you know, it's like a mad lib for, for uh, FAA applications. Um, and we uh, time those applications so that when they take delivery of a system, they are full up and ready to go with regulatory approval. Um, and, and we're able to do that because we, we understand and, and uh, you know, forecast out our, our manufacturing queue and know generally when those systems are going to be delivered. So we make that application. We just backwards plan effectively. 
Yeah. Yeah. That's great. So that way all the slots are lined up and it's, it's ready to go. So speaking of that, Kevin, uh, you know, we, we've got 10 people are listening here that just, just want to have one of these, uh, one of these cool tools to, to put to use and they're just waiting to write a check. How do, when is it available? What's, uh, what's the commercial launch date and, and, and those kind of things looking like at this moment. Sure. That's uh, let, let me get to that one in a question uh, in in just a second because okay. I didn't answer the second part of your question and 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 which is common among our customers. What do I need to be able to fly this thing? Um, federal level, you need a a Part One Hundred Seven uh, license, which is a, a drone pilot's license. That's easy. Study for a weekend and take a test uh, with the FAA. Uh, you need uh, obviously a, a valid driver's license, but you also need uh, an FAA medical certificate. Um, which is easier to get than a, uh, a, a DOT medical. It's, you just go in. It's a it's a physical examination by an FAA doctor, um, and and almost all cities uh, have those guys around, so you can you can look them up. Um, but uh, from a, a state perspective, it's a, a, a little bit different, right? Um, some states differentiate between aerial application and uh, ground application. Uh, you'll need an aerial applicator, uh, sorry, an aerial pesticide applicator's license if your state differentiates between the two of them. Um, and for those that don't, you just need a pesticide applicator license. California is the hardest. We do get this question. Um, you right now, uh, and we're we're working on changing this uh, to be an aerial pesticide applicator. Uh, you need a pilot's license, or you need to be working under someone who is a pilot. Um, so we are currently brainstorming ways to help our customers in California, uh, how to not to get around the regulations, but comply with the regulations and be productive. Um, so that, that answers that question for the, the, the one that you just asked for the manufacturing. Um, if a customer, uh, is really interested, uh, wants to learn more, they can reach out to me directly if they have more questions or if they are already know. Uh, you're one of those folks that I met um, at any one of the trade shows that we've been to. Um, you can go to the website, um, guardian.ag, guardian.ag, uh, and we've got it set up so that you can reserve now. If, if you're a small grower um, you know, or a small co-op and you know you only want you know, one or two systems, you can make a, a refundable deposit directly through the website uh, for those systems. Uh, and you'll be hearing from me in, sh in short order to um, really connect with you and, and find out more about your use case and, and, and give you a rundown on, on when you can expect those systems. If, if you're a larger co-op, a retailer, something, aerial applicator, um, we've got all of those customer types. Um, typically, uh, we don't take those through the website. Uh, those are done via invoice, the, the website's not really optimized for more than, than one or two of those deposits. Um, right now, um, this is a, a good problem to have, but also kind of disappointing to uh, have to tell um, potential customers uh, is that our manufacturing right now is backed up through 2025. So uh, we there there is a lot of demand for these systems um, through the demos and, and discussions that we've had with folks. They recognize that that what we're building is aviation grade. Um, it's not, you know, using um, hobby grade parts. Um, it's a, a durable machine um, that was purpose built uh, for your use cases and is likely to withstand, you know, five years, um, you know, the, the environments that they're subjected to. So we took the same approach that 
uh, American OEMs do with, with trackers and, and ground rigs. We built a piece of farm equipment. Um, so that's where we are currently. I, uh, you know, hopefully over time, we're able to scale production in, in such a way that uh, those times come down significantly. Well, that's, that's great. I mean, um, you know, we, you've dealt with your fair share, share of challenges too with uh, electronic shortages and supply chain craziness and, uh, yeah. you know, coming out of COVID, all those things have really affected um, ag tech startup companies just in general. So uh, I'm glad you survived. Glad you're on track to, to keep moving forward. So um, can I jump in there one second, Bobby? Yeah, go for like, it. I, the supply chain's a, a, a great, um, a great point to, to, to oh, just touch yeah. on. I heard um, this, this is amazing. Look at, at the field day. I, I, I just thought it was really interesting where you source your parts from. Yeah, we, um, so we are an American built system. Um, and you're right. We did experience some supply chain disruption. Uh, but thankfully, you know, our, our, our VP of, uh, electrical engineering, uh, Dan Landers did, did a great job in exploring, um, supply chains and was able to uh, determine, you know, basically did a build or buy analysis, right? Can we build it in-house? And if we can't, how can we keep the supply chain as short as possible? So in the instance of, of power control boards, we can't build power control boards, but we can assemble them. So um, we're sourcing our power control boards from a company that's 15 minutes away from our engineering headquarters. And we basically can just drive over, pick them up, and then start assembling them. And we do that with all of our parts. If we can't build it, we source it within the United States. And those parts that we cannot source um, are in the United States. We don't go across the Pacific. That, that's an incredibly long supply chain. We go to NATO countries in Europe. Uh, so our motors, our propellers, they come from NATO countries in Europe. Um, but aside from that, uh, very, very few pieces uh, come from outside the United States. That's a, that's a phenomenal approach. And I, I really wish uh, others would really look at the risks involved with, uh, you know, having those uh, cheapest isn't always the cheapest, is it? So no. uh, that that's, I'm glad you guys had the, the forward looking vision to do that. So that, that was my next question. You got your crystal ball there on your desk right now, Kevin, can uh, you I, polish it I off? Got- and, and I've got an iPhone. Computer. Maybe I can download Magic oh, Eight Ball. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it, it'll probably tell you what's going to happen. But uh, uh, where do you see this? Uh, where do you see this being at in ten years? You know, uh, use of drones in in agriculture. What what's your what's your vision of it? Um, you know, there are folks out there that think that this is um, this is going to replace uh, many parts of of how we currently apply. Uh, crop inputs and and I think that in some use cases that that might be true, but it's not wholesale replacement, right? So one of the things that I tell folks that I talk to is this is a tool. A carpenter does not go out with just a saw and a hammer. A carpenter goes out with a tool belt and a toolbox and 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 chooses the right tool for the right job. Um, I think in in ten years uh, certainly this technology is going to scale larger. This is the smallest system with, that that we're making. We're not going smaller. Smaller already exists. There's no reason to go backwards. Um, we're going to develop technologies that are able to address, lar- you know, broader acreage units. Um, but when you start talking about, you know, one-to-one comparison against, you know, uh, an AT802, you know, or something like that, like we're we're not we're not carrying 
800 gallons worth of stuff. But um, certainly we can design systems that um, can can put a dent in in the broad acre market or, or be able to take fields that are uh, uh, just not optimized for, for, for larger aircraft. 10 years from now, I think what you've got is, um, uh, fingers crossed, uh, every grower has access to precise, reliable, and transparent aerial application with an unmanned system. Doesn't mean necessarily that, that every grower owns one. Uh, we make it easy enough for, to, to use that they, they could, but just like the ground sprayers, you know, not every grower owns a ground sprayer. Um, and, and I think that that's the important piece here is being able to have access to reliable, repeatable, and transparent aerial applications. So they know um, it's going to be there when they asked for it to be there. Um, it can, uh, you know, repeat the same application every single time uh, without variation. Uh, once you've got that recipe dialed in, it goes out and it applies it the exact same way every time. Um, so you don't get, you know, um, missed edges or, um, you know, variation in, in the application quality. It's the same. And then last is transparent. So that when they ask for five gallons per acre or 20 gallons per acre, they know at the end of the day, they're actually getting that amount they asked for. And those are the three things. That never happens, Kevin. Come on. <laughs> oh, geez. I know, I know I, it um, does. Uh, you know, I I currently have a high clearance ground sprayer because um, the transparency was an issue with an aerial applicator. Okay. So yeah. I just, to get an as-applied shape vial out of an aerial applicator is sometimes like pulling teeth. Yeah. And, uh, you know, it's amazing the tank always empties. You just don't know where it empties at. But uh, mm. uh, there, there's, there's lots of stuff that happens. And that is a great point. So I, the things I like about it is, you know, distance off the canopy that you can maintain, the constant flight speed, irregardless of your tank fullness, mm -hmm. and especially when you get into variable terrain, you know, being able to go up and down following the hills, mm -hmm. uh, it just can't happen when you're when you're flying 150 mile an hour uh, and have a full tank on the front. So uh, those are um, those are all all great things. Um, the other thing is, is I, I like how you said, when you, when you think about it now, everything that needs to get sprayed is being sprayed with right. something, right? Mm -hmm. So is, is this a better option to do something or, or allow us to do more? And I think it will. And I, I hope that, uh, we can be at a point where, you know, instead of having the self-propelled sprayer, uh, maybe it could be economical for, a, you know, a mid or large farmer to have one of these to do all of their spraying with, you know, essentially, especially at the 50 acre per hour. Hey, we're we're within the range of, you know, uh, a mid-sized self-propelled sprayer. So um, that that is kind of kind of interesting. So then the question becomes: Is do you think the ground rigs, the autonomous ground rigs versus autonomous drones, how will that shake out? Do you given any thought to that? Played the fifth. Oh. <laughs> no, no. I you, think uh, you just need to say, hey, that crystal ball, it's a little murky. Yeah, I, it, it is a little bit murky. I, you know, I hear both sides of that, right? And and I tend to be the person that thinks, look, th this is a, that, like I said, you know, five minutes ago, this is a tool. Um, but there, there are people um, that believe that this is going to replace a large portion of ground spraying. And I understand that statement. Um, if it's not wholesale replacement, 
large uh, replacement of, of ground sprayers. When, when we're able to scale the technology to a level that it can compete on a one-to-one -one basis with, with all ground rigs that are out there, um, you simply, if, if I asked you, Monty, would I've got this system over here that's never going to touch the ground and can apply and get the same effects as the rig that you're putting into your fields right now, but you're not going to have ground compaction. What are you going to do? Um, not everybody's going to say, I'm not going to use a spray rig. But I think a, a very large portion of people are going to understand, um, you know, their, their yields are going to improve over time if, if they're not experiencing that, that ground compaction. You're not bringing in weeds on the tires. Uh, you don't have to deal with transporting it, right? I, I heard a, was it tech, um, World Agritech uh, last month, I think it was, um, or earlier this month. And uh, I heard a stat on on ground rigs for, you know, the, the custom applicators are out there. 30% of the time that, that those rigs are in operation is productive time. The other 60% of that time is not. It is sitting idle running or it's uh, transiting between the barn and the field. That's a lot of time right. on that machine that is not going to productive use. So I, I, I see both sides of the argument. There's a compaction issue for sure, but I think there's something else, uh, crop damage, uh, yep. you know, and final things, operator safety. Uh, that operator is anywhere from a hundred to 2,500 feet away from the point of application. And uh, I think that's that's a big deal, you know. Instead of operator having to be in a cab, surrounded by the 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 plume and you know volatile uh, particles there, mm -hmm. uh, there that's that's definitely a plus. So, but no, I, it's it's interesting to see, and I and I hope uh, everyone will will take a chance to um, go to your website and and check it out. Um, I've got kind of a list of some fun questions uh, to go over here uh, in our, our after the show show and uh, and see. But anything else that you uh, want to add that I should have asked here today, Kevin, while we're while we're together? No, I, I think, uh, you know, the, the questions you asked are great. Um, and, uh, I, you know, again, just happy to uh, have been able to, to speak here. I appreciate you having me on. It's been a fun journey to see you guys. I, I remember bumping into you the first time it was at Farmers Business Network almost five years ago. Uh, with the six rotor machine and and seeing you uh, what you've come to and all the developments you've made to to make this possible, I, I think it's uh, pretty amazing what uh, your entire team has done. So, congratulations what you're doing and and really allowing us to be better stewards because we'll be able to apply what we need when we need exactly how we need it, so less total impact uh, and lead us to better management. So, uh, yeah, thank you, Kevin. I I really appreciate it. Pass that along to the the kudos along to the entire team, please. Will do. And uh, looking forward to getting out there on the fields this summer. Thanks for listening to this conversation today. The Ag Emerge podcast has made it a priority to explore ag technology that can help us to adopt practices that ultimately help to improve soil health. It's exciting technology, and it's great to see these advancements. And as always, if you'd like to learn more about what we're doing to help growers implement soil health practices, check out our website at asn.farm. And there you can click on links to follow us on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, LinkedIn, and YouTube. There's a lot of great things happening and always something to learn. Thanks for listening.